Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on Israel News Talk Radio dot com, the place to be. <sighs> My weather report: <laughs> low clouds, sun hovering above, ready to beam down onto our lives. What week are we in? What week of the war? The new normal. Wacky. This week with clients, whereas up until up until about two weeks ago, there was sort of this pall. We were walking around and sort of that bittersweet, sardonic laugh. How are you? How can we be? How am I? How is anybody? Um... And now there seems to be, and my Israeli, my delicious Israeli listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be, we're putting in our rhythms, we're catching our rhythms, always aware, never more than a step away from the reality that our precious Chayalim, our soldiers are still there, vigilant, watching the borders monitoring the roiling rage of this aberrant enemy. And yet we function. It's amazing. It's amazing the strength that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, has imbued in we, the stiff-necked, Jews. More about that later. Um, the new normal. So we say good morning. It should be a good morning, a good day, a good encounter, a good livelihood, good news with our health, good news with our children, and good news for the people of Israel, both here and around the world. Um, let's say hi, listening in from the U.S. We have that. Let me just make sure that all of these, these old, we have these noisy apps. Let's quiet them down. Good. Okay, we have listening in this morning from the U.S., where it's late at night. Australia's with us today. Boketov Eretz Israel, holy, holy people. The U.K. is listening in. South Africa my second home, of course. You can tell by the accent. <laughs> Kenya is with us today. Very nice. Jamaica. Yes. Spain, Brazil. And of course, it warms the cockles of my heart to see Canada is with us this morning. Very, very nice. Today's program, I think I called it, you know, I always do this little Facebook post and I called it choosing freedom or freedom of choice. I think I'd have to look at it to know. But um, it's a, it's a, we bandy about. I have freedom of choice, free will. I can do what I want. And on the other cynical side, we frequently say, who has much choice? We're puppets from the time we're born until we leave this earth. We, you know, remember that song from the 60s, little boxes on the hilltop, on the hillside. I know that some of my old camp friends are humming right now, little boxes made of ticky-tack. You know, we all do the same thing. But is it true? 
And what choices do we have? I mean, so cynical. We have, what is it? No, except for death and death and taxes. There is no choice. Um, I know that I receive letters from dear friends and friends I have not yet met. And we're all kind of pulling at each other, looking for chizok, looking for strength, looking for emboldenment, looking for the bright side on days that seem bleak, one bleak day after another. And those of us living in Israel know that the weather certainly has not been cooperating to elevate our moods lately, that much-needed rain. Hmm is just falling and falling and falling, bitter, bitter. And it dawned on me this week, um, I had, I, I would like to say I had the obligatory visits to the dentist, but even that's not obligatory. One can have large spaces in their mouths let their teeth go very hard, very hard to keep the body together, especially at a certain age. And on my way to the dentist, I decided to go by bus, my dentist is actually located in the Geula neighborhood of Jerusalem, old renovate, renov, I'm not saying, I say renovated, but uh, venerated, that was it, venerated area of Jerusalem. And in order to get there by bus, I take the bus. Anybody who's familiar with Israel knows what I'm talking about. I take the bus, the number 78, 74, 75. I take it to Rehov Agrippas, Agrippas Street, and I get out by the Shuk, the Machna Yehuda Market. And if I have an 8 o'clock appointment, I get there before the market is even waking up. Trucks are unloading. And there's shouting, and you see the steaming cups of coffee from really the hardy workers pulling up the iron gates. And um, you feel this vibrancy enter your body, and you realize that you're part of something so central. The trick is to be aware, to be aware of our vitality, to be aware of our pulsing heartbeats, to not walk through the shooks or ride the bus, <coughs> excuse me, or enter a synagogue or take a drive and be stuck in traffic and be immersed in our own thoughts, our choice to be aware of our environment, of what's going on around us, of what it feels like to be living in another man's body, someone else's circumstances. That level of awareness, and it's hard. I struggle with this personally all the time. So easy to become self-absorbed. But when we step outside of ourselves and we hear the noises of the shuk or walk through Gaula and see seminary girls and yeshiva boys and elderly women and old rabbis going off into their worlds, their days, with their heartaches and their hopes. It can make 
the situation that we find ourselves living in, certainly in Israel, as we so commonly refer to as the matzav, the situation, it can change bleak to hopeful, dark to light. Our strengths really do come from one another. And that's what I mean by freedom of choice. This week, the husband and I, well, I actually forced him. It was a, it was very frightening. Um, I forced him to watch a documentary on NetVision. <coughs> Excuse me, I need a glass of water, a sip of water. Hmm. Um, many of you have heard of it. It's called um, You Are What You Eat. And I always, you know, I'm always finding the Jewish thing in everything. And I said, no, 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 you must watch it. You must watch it. Because over over Shabbat, my, my stepdaughter and I were talking about it and saying, you know what? It's hard when you read about this, when you hear about it, the studies on veganism versus carnivorism, uh, meat eating versus vegetarianism versus uh, whether it be lacto, whether it be veganism, it's very hard to run from the truth. And if you're not interested in the moral issues of vegetarianism, um, this is always something that I'm very, very interested in. And I think about a lot. Um, you have to, you can't ignore what they talk about, the inefficiency of a meat-eating diet. Where is she going with this? So we were thinking about it and talking about it and talking about it. So finally, I glued my husband to the bed. It's the only room where we keep a television. <laughs> I made him watch. I'm still paying for making him watch this vid- This uh, documentary called You Are What They Eat. And it was a study. Apparently, the study they studied 21 identical sets of identical twins. Not identical sets of twins. 21 sets of identical twins. And this, they focused on four for this study, I think it was four episodes, six episodes. And um, what was very fascinating was they they interspersed it. It would have been a little bit dull, just these people's lives. I mean, it was all seemed to be very nice people. But um, I was thinking about the choices. And what I loved most about this documentary, I know that several of you have seen this. I expected it to be a propaganda piece. And I was willing. I actually entered it watching. Okay, I'll watch this propaganda. I have desertion. But what was most fascinating was at the end of the study, the lack of overriding celebration of one way of eating versus another. It was veganism versus an omnivore diet. This is not carnivore omnivore, which was really a balanced, it included dairy, it included all kinds of animal products, but included healthy doses of grains and of vegetables. And I found it very interesting. And at the end, the scientists who introduced the program were quite humble. And they said in certain areas, one diet certainly surpassed the other. But the second would surpass the first. And it didn't come down hard. And there was such a tone of tsniyut, of modesty, of humility, of I knew everything at the beginning of this study. 
And now I'm grateful to know less. And I thought about us. How many of us remember when we were in high school? Was there anything anybody didn't know in high school and in university? I was a genius in university. I mean, going on, I wore a beret, tilted at a, at a kind of a skatish angle, and um, I had information on everything. Thankfully, at the ripe old age of, believe that slot blank, I know less and a little less every single day. I had written out the show. I have everything written out. <clears throat> and as I was logging on to our network, I stumbled across a Dvar Torah, a Torah, uh, Torah, Dvar Torah. It's usually a Torah lecture, a, uh, a um, essay written by Rabbi Moshe Tarragon. And I, I read Moshe Tarragon every week. Very interesting. And this, and it just caught my eye. And in this week's Torah tidbits, a, uh, a news magazine I read each week, <coughs> he calls this article Dark Clouds Above, Yerat Shemayim Below. And what Yerat Shemayim is, it's awe of heaven, awe of what's above us. And um, he, 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 he opens by saying that at the Yamsuf, that was the, the sea of reeds that split, he said, we saw too much. And at Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, we saw nothing. But at each time, the awe of heaven surged. Our relationship with God is riveted upon two emotions, ahava, love, and yira, which is fear. Fear. Human relationships are defined by love or fear, but never both side by side. This is what Rabbi Tarragon says. Our relationship with God, however, is a blend of these two dichotomous emotions. <clears throat> Ava is a byproduct. Love is a byproduct of understanding God, his mitzvot, the commandments, his role in history. We love him most when we're able to identify that, that synchronism between his will and human welfare, realizing that God's will enhances human experience we appreciate him and love him because adhering to his will improves our lives. And by undercover, uncovering that intersection between Torah and human welfare, consequently, according to Rabbi Terrigan, we love God. And similarly, when we're capable of deciphering history and Understanding God's hidden hand, we understand and we love him. Ahava, love emerges when religion is logical, history intelligible, and to us, faith makes sense. And he concludes this observation by talking about October 7th. And indeed, Rabbi Moshe Tarragon continues and he says, or he concludes that October 7th changed everything. 
the past three months we've been covered with dark clouds and we feel lost in a world without logic or clarity. What's happening? What happened to the covenant of our forefathers, the Brit Avot? Wasn't the Holocaust the last and final nightmare of Jewish exile? Shouldn't it be different back home in Israel? So many questions, so many miseries, so much pain. We have to recalibrate. Perhaps we are overshot. Perhaps we saw too much and forgot to surrender to the unknowable. Rabbi Tarragon concludes, don't rush to speak. Don't hurry to announce ideas. God is in heaven and you are grounded on earth. Therefore, your words should be few. Faith, yes. Overconfidence, no. We all need to speak with more sniut, more modesty about the future. That was the point. Thank you, Rabbi Tarragon. The point was to sit, to bask, to know less, to master our small spaces and find the light, find the connection with one another. When my friends say, but Andrea, what will happen? Is it hopeless? Is there doom and gloom? My answer is unquivocally, we will win this war. Not just is there hope, there is a surety. And most important, cynicism, there's no place for cynicism. There's no place for being smarter than everyone in the negative. You hate a government? You dislike a politician? There's a leader who you feel isn't up to snuff? Your anger, your rage, your sharing, your disappointments will do nothing, will do nothing to bring more glory into the world. All that energy that goes into rage can be put into finding the upbeat. I have never seen it work in the opposite way. Negativity breeds negativity and a smile and happiness and belief in the future. It's not selective. In his book, Smiling Each Day, great book, try to find it. Rabbi Avraham Torsky of Blessed Memory says, you know, if a person doesn't criticize what Hashem does, Hashem may not be too critical of that which he does either. There's a Gansa message in here. Let's curb the criticism, <coughs> curb the rage, unless it's equally imbued with love, hope, and positivity. Um, we have choices. We have choices what we eat, what goes into our mouths. We have choices what comes out of our mouths. Same thing, what we bring into our hearts and out. Um, 
I'm going to finish with this vegetarian business. You know, you know what my algorithms have my pages filled with. It really is an ongoing, ongoing discussion in this house. And notice I have not said much. All right. Um, I didn't know this. Out of an Indian newspaper, I think it's the Times of India. Well, that would make sense. They did a study and India is the most vegetarian country in the world and the second highest vegetarian country in the world. And they didn't differentiate between veganism and vegetarianism. Are you ready? Israel. Israel. Topped only by India. We are, uh, we, we are equal to Taiwan. 13% of our population, according to this study, is vegetarian. And in Israel, it's absolutely, it's a lifestyle cho choice. And it's practiced by both observant and non-observant population. I have met many, many, many religiously observant uh, vegetarian families. Very interesting. All right. Someone else pointed out to me this week that God did not, what did they call it? They called it the Red Sea, but it's not that it was the Sea of Reeds, okay, the Yamsuf, where, where, where the children of Israel got to, and it split apart. Could have been removed. Could have made the sea disappear. Give them just dry land to cross, but he didn't. He parted it. The sea separated. Our problems, God doesn't always remove them. But there's always a path. Something to think about. <clears throat> I don't know if this is true. I don't know. Do we have any... Uh, any marine biologists in this audience? If so, I forgot to tell you, write to me. Write to me at Andrea. You don't have to write to me if you're a marine biologist. You can write to me for anything. Okay, got a lot of beautiful notes this week. Very nice notes. And um, write to me at Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. We're taking a, uh, here's a public, a PSA, a public service announcement. You could write that note. Also, I got a lot of um, requests this week for the link to the um, <clears throat> Facebook group. I think it's uh, Israel News Network, Israel Network News. I'm just looking right to me and I will send you that link. Uh, the reason I'm not saying it out loud is it's a little bit of a complicated link. It's Israel News Highlights. And what's wonderful is, I've said it before, but it'll get you off of the computer all day reading sources about what's going on in Israel. <clears throat> from sources that do not love you, do not care about you, and use us as a, you know, interesting uh, public entertainment. This Israel News Highlights, it's a wonderful, wonderful service. Three times a week, comes three times a day, comes into your WhatsApp box and tells you what you need to know. There's no agenda other than putting Israel first. It does not hide the news, neither the good, the bad, nor the ugly, but gives you what you need to know, and you can go on with your day and stop wringing your hands. So I was asking about the, so write to me, Andrea Israel News Talk Radio.com. Okay, um, somebody posted this. I don't know if this is accurate. So any of the machine, machine biologists, the marine biologists, or somebody who knows anything about sharks, 
I should have asked my grandsons. They know a lot about sharks. So somebody said that a shark in a fish tank, I guess a regular fish tank, will grow to eight inches inside, in size, inside, in size. But in the wild, a shark can grow to be eight feet or more. That same shark baby. Is that true? So let's for a moment, let's assume it's true. Okay. After all, we got it on Google. So let's assume a shark in a fish tank will grow to eight inches, but in the wild, it will grow to eight feet or more. What's the Musa? What's the Torah lesson here? A shark will never outgrow its environment. And the same is true about people. Many times, this is what this, this, this person wrote, it said, I'm extrapolating, of course, but it says many times we are around small-minded people so we don't grow. And if we change our environment, we'll, we can see our growth explode. <coughs> I find that interesting. I like it. Even if I'm not a, mach- uh, a machine biologist. Okay. Um, we try to be upbeat. Somebody asked me recently, you know, so what's the show about? And I said, it's a get together. It's a weekly get together of like-minded people, loving, God-fearing, Torah celebrating individuals who just want to talk about Torah and talk about the hope and talk about tomorrow and talk about morality. That's what the show is about. And every once in a while we pepper it with unpleasant happenings in the world. This station, Israel News Talk Radio, is indeed, I mean, if there are a Nobel Prize for radio stations, it definitely comes here because there's no, they don't mince words. You really get a cross-section of, I would say, a conservative, Torah-centric Jewish heart view and there's no you know i'm okay you're okay isms of it it's pure it's honest and you know what real jews are thinking and um that's very very nice because people deserve the truth they deserve accuracy every time i hear about a strain of judaism that says but you know what Only the Orthodox believe that. We're okay with a patrilineal line of Judaism. It makes me not just angry, it makes me sad for the sincere questioners who deserve the fact that there is no such thing today as a patrilineal line of Judaism. So that's why I particularly adore this station. And the reason I'm bringing this up right now is this station. If you want to get stuff that's going on that's really not so okay in the Jewish world, they'll tell you here. They'll let you know. They're not going to cover it with cheap perfume. So this show, I try not to cover anything with cheap perfume, but I try to hide from the things that are so beautifully covered on Israel News Talk Radio. However, long-winded to get to that. We have Great Britain listening to us again. The UK is with us. And um, what is happening? On bleak days, it gets bleaker. Apparently, 
a Holocaust education program that I think was mandated across the country. Correct me if I'm wrong. This article did not tell me whether or not it's it's mandated nationally, but three UK schools, because of the matzav, because of the situation. These are secular schools, um, I believe mixed high schools. They're postponing their Holocaust education program because of community tensions. Come on, we know what that is. Isn't that nice? Community tensions. It's The programs are sponsored by an entity called the Anne Frank Trust. And they announced that um, it, it was founded, it was founded uh, post-Holocaust to provide education, <coughs> sorry, from 9 to 15-year-olds through via using Anne Frank's diary. Well, I guess we're knocking it off the bookshelves and um, it's not, you know, politically correct. And community tensions have made the trust, um, well, I don't know if they're the ones, three schools have postponed our programs because of local community tensions, according to the trust's CEO, Tim Robinson, Robertson. And he said that they had, after October 7th, they had gone out of their way to hire new staff because there should have been more focus. And instead, they've been canceled. And I guess they don't want to uh, call too much attention to the European Holocaust. So they're focusing ever since, and the other schools, more focus on Anne's sister Margot's dream to make Aliyah and how her best friend, Hannah Gosler, rebuilt her life in Israel after surviving Bergen Belson. Is anybody here hearing the word pandering? Pandering. Oh, make them love us. Make them love us. Um, yeah, let's finish. I'm looking at the clock to see how much stuff we have to actually touch because we have to know. Um, you know, there's so much fighting. We have fighting in the Knesset. We have protests in the street. I recently joined a beautiful action group of mothers of combat soldiers. This active, holy group of moms are staging protests and sit-ins um, outside the U.S. Embassy the consulate here in Jerusalem, outside of the Knesset, outside of the prime minister's home, encouraging our government and our government not to stop the war until our objectives are met and Hamas is eradicated, and as well to stop the pressure from, in particular, the United States government from pressuring us to commit to agreements that will put our holy populace into jeopardy. And I must admit, not everybody holds this viewpoint. The families of the hostages are extremely vocal, extremely well-organized, and have the ability to rip at our hearts with their extremely unimaginable circumstance. 
That's who we are. We shout. We yell. We oppose one another. But in our vibrancy, we are real. The reason I bring this up is, has anybody since October 7th actually seen any kind of government, any kind of leadership coming out of the Hamas? Their form of government? Rockets. Satanic attacks. Where are they? Even their leadership, hiding in bunkers, hasn't come out to address their people. Battered. Injured. Our imperfect democracy. The only one in the neighborhood, boys and girls, is very strong, very out there. And please understand, choose where you get your news from, because the fact remains is that the great majority of Israelis, and according to studies, that includes almost half of Arab Israelis, we are committed to the fighting in Gaza, despite the recent ruling by the inter uh, the international um, judicial court. This filth. Okay. Anyway, we are committed to finishing the job. Keep your chins up. Keep your heads up. Keep your dignity up, and know where our strength comes from. Um. Let's see. Oh, wait a second. I lost a page here. Stay with me. Stay back. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Talking about that South African, that South. Imagine, imagine life lessons from South Africa. If it weren't so crazy, somebody would say, stop the movie. Stop, Stop the tape. It's too stupid to imagine. Too foolish to imagine. Um, Israel, no one minimizes civilian casualties more than anyone in history. Point to any army in history that has merited a footnote. And you will see, we rock it. We rock space it, not rocket. Um, Israel has done more to prevent civilian casualties in Gaza. And by the way, there are debates here in Israel. What has our averting civilian casualties in Gaza? How can we measure what it has cost us in terms of the lives of our holier, yeah, better than them existence? It's... Okay, I'm getting I'm getting a little heated here. Let's stop getting heated. Um, we have been condemned. We have been raked over the coals. Everything that that court came out and was saying in terms of 
child, the child, the, 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 the what is it, the uh, minor population of Gaza is suffering. And then they attribute it to Israel. The hospitals, the patients in Israel, in, in Gaza are suffering. They attributed that to Israel. The innocent civilians, paren sick, close paren, of Gaza are suffering. And that they attributed to Israel. Every single pronouncement out of that court on Friday afternoon. I was nervous. We were driving. I was scared that my husband was going to drive off the side of the road. Every single one they attributed to Israel without qualification. There was one address for the misery taking place in Aza. And that address is Hamas. Do not be confused. One address and one address only. All right. And in closing with our how filthy is this enemy? Not just ruthless. How cynical. How immoral. In case you didn't hear it. In case tunnels to send RPGs in which to hide ammunition to ferry prisoners to build bombs and to plan brutal satanic attacks against innocent civilians. If doing this under hospitals didn't do it for you, if doing it under nursery schools doesn't do it for you, how about the fact that just this past week in Khan Yunis, a massive operations room, a Hamas room of operations, was built underneath a cemetery. Okay? It was about a kilometer long and uh, 20 meters deep. Underneath where their dead are in their eternal resting place. It was just staggering. They just, I mean... Absolutely, an entire cemetery complex underneath it. And of course, the inhabitants of the cemetery weren't going to report them about all the nighttime drilling. They had kitchens, they had rooms, they had storage for a long time. Anyway, we have closed the tunnel, we've bombed it or whatever. And um, how's that for cynicism? Under a cemetery. Oh, but don't they care? Don't they care? No moral parody. Okay, and in our upbeat note, before we go to Devar Torah, our upbeat note, our holy citizens in the uh, uh, Yehuda and Shamron. This was in Janine. So this came from a, a Hebrew media outlet. I don't remember which one. But um, they actually got this report from Palestinian media media. There was an Israeli operation that took place at the Sina Hospital in Jenin. The entire operation, man, we did what we do best. So put this pat our, let's pat ourselves on the back. It was an operation at the Ibn Sina Hospital, and Israeli forces literally entered the hospital, entered the medical center, because it wasn't a hospital, okay? 
they entered at 5.30 a.m. dressed as doctors, nurses, and Arab women. They headed to a room on the third floor, shot and surprised three mechablim, three filthy terrorists with guns that had silencers, and they found enormous, enormous stockpiles of um, weaponry. Okay? They shot him dead. They were out within 10 minutes. And the operation was, of course, made possible because of accurate, well-bred intelligence. What we do best. All right. It's going to be a good week. Somebody said to me yesterday, somebody, a friend of mine who is secular, uh, and said, so what are your weekend plans? And I was laughing. Anybody who's listening to the show that's Torah observant knows our weekend plans. We don't sit and get nervous like, oh, my gosh, I don't have weekend plans. I hope that my weekend is eventless. Sabbath, lighting the candles, having a wonderful supper, talking Torah, connecting with people. Yeah. We don't do much in the entertainment field. Um, those are the weekend plans. Okay. I think this is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the only Torah portion that is named after a non-Jew and actually is named in honor of a non-Jew. Today's portrait, uh, Torah's portion, tomorrow, tomorrow night, is Parshat Yitro. In English, it's Jethro. I love saying Jethro. It makes me think of the Beverly Hillbillies. Remember that one? Hey, Jethro. So we're going to say Yitro. So Yitro, and he gets his own Torah portion. This is fascinating. He certainly is one of the most Interesting, I wouldn't necessarily say complex characters in the Torah, but I have a real affinity for him because if nothing else, Yitro is the consummate truth seeker. And there are many Yitros, according to Rabbi Wine, there are many Yitros in Yitro's life. And perhaps this is the reason that the rabbis teach that he possesses actually seven different names. I had no idea about that until preparing for this show. Each name um, represents a different aspect of his life at a different point. We meet him at the crossroads of his life um, when he's selecting between various choices and beliefs. Now, on one hand, he's a priest. He's, or actually, I should say he's a former priest of paganism in Midian, He's experimented with every form of religion in the world before discovering monotheism. I think it's safe to say that at one point, Yitro must have been a vegan. Um, he's influenced by the unexpected arrival of a son-in-law named Moses. <clears throat> but he's also greatly influenced by the exodus from Egypt Yitzhiah Mitzrayim, and the, you know, the hard-to-ignore miracles that accompanied that unprecedented event. 
But something about Yitro is even deeper than that. It's not the superficial, look at what I've seen. There's an inner, an inner conviction that stirs him and brings him to the belief in one God. Yitro states, quote, now I know that the Lord is God, for he has avenged himself on the Egyptians in the manner that they intended to destroy the Jews, close quote. The Egyptians drowned Jewish children in the Nile, and consequently, they themselves are drowned at the Yamsuf. Yitro is impressed, not only by the miracle of the destruction of this Egyptian oppressor, but by the manner the methodology of this destruction and how the miracles exhibited. So in a sense, we say um, Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, the Split Sea. It's that Mida Keneged Mida, that measure for measure method of punishment that sort of, it fascinates him and it leads him. You have to be very, very brave to be a Yitro to abandon a belief system and a background in order to join Israel in the desert. He arrived at his new beliefs by judicial, rational analysis. So consequently, I think I'm using that word consequently a lot today, but I love it. You know, he applies the same method in advising his son-in-law, Moshe, as to creating an efficient operation of the Jewish judicial system in the desert. He's consistent in his analytical approach to manners, to matters. He thinks, he contemplates, he measures. He was so positively influenced by that measure for measure punishment of the Paro and his Egyptian hordes. He understood it weren't no Big Bang Theory. Rabbi Wine calls him the ultimate outsider, looking in to see Torah and the Jewish people. Something in here is very humbling for those of us who call ourselves traditional Jews. A lot of times, it's the outsider who sees things more clearly than the inside than the insider in a society. In Yiddish, there's a wonderful expression that a temporary guest sees for a mile. Um, the Jewish people, especially in our religious world, we live, we do, we live very insular, you know? And because of this, a lot of times, we can't really see what otherwise is very plain to those looking in. You know, I think like, Everybody must eat. Everybody will understand the brilliance of Shabbos because I think Shabbos is brilliant, but it's not true. An outsider can see the negatives. Um, the example of Yitro encourages us to actually give credence to the views of the outsiders within our own community. You know, a lot of times, especially people who listen to this show and they drop me notes, I love it, coming from different backgrounds, Many have fought their ways through a lot of false beliefs before they come to the Torah and observing the mitzvot, that their views, their experiences should be important to us. I love 
finding out from those who have converted to Judaism, to Torah observance, their stories never grow stale. Their insights are humbling. The tendency to kind of force outsiders to become exactly like us, according to Rabbi Wine, is actually counterproductive. Yitro never becomes Moshe, but Moshe and Israel greatly benefit from Yitro's observance, his judgment, his advice. I guess that's what's really being said, is that we all can benefit from the insights, advice, and good wishes, especially from those outsiders. <clears throat> you know, we call today's show Freedom of Choice. It's a major theme in this Parsha. Yitro, what an example. This is a guy, he's not ashamed. He is not so imbued with chutzpah, with ego, that he's not beyond saying, you know what? I was wrong. It might seem a little crazy in a Parsha, in a Torah portion that is so poetic, so symbolic, so filled with actually love sonnets. Listen to this. It says in this week's portion, <laughs> I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you unto myself. You shall be mine own treasure from among all the peoples. That's one. Here's another. And it came to pass on the third day when it was morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of a horn exceedingly loud and all the people trembled that were in the camp. And what about this one? And when the voice of the horn waxed louder and louder, Moshe spoke and God answered him by a voice. And how does all this poetry culminate? The giving of the law, the aseret hadibrot, the Ten Commandments. So the question really is like, where, where inside this romance novel exactly does the freedom of choice come in? Ha ha! <laughs> okay. The events that are recorded in this, um, this Torah portion take place. Actually, if you do the math, if you look at the calendar, it takes place in the spring of the Jewish year. Get ready for this, 2,448. So at that time, there were, there were many prosperous nations. You know, we forget, we think it's us and Egypt. We, they were surrounded in that portion of the world. There were nations with many sophisticated legal and social and economic systems. And in contrast to the other nations of the day, who were we? We were, we were actually a slave people. We were a nation of bricklayers, not, not really very progressive or very uh, cultured. Adopting a modern measure, the people of Israel could be comparatively um, considered socially and intellectually inferior at that time. To make matters worse, not only are we inferior, not only are we, shall we say, low class, we are extremely difficult, very lacking in humility, insecurity, and um, uncertainty led us to none other than the sin of the golden calf. The Torah also makes mention of our most unflattering personality traits, referring to us as stiff-necked. We don't bend. An uncultured, 
unruling and demanding lot. So what lifts us up and saves us from extinction when we're surrounded by so many sophisticates? It was choice. Choice that was freely made. Choice not imposed upon us. The choice of the people of Israel to accept belief in one God and the laws and the commandments of our blessed Torah as summarized, encapsulated in the Aseret HaDibrot, the Ten Commandments. And all of our souls, our neshamot, were direct witnesses to this revelation. We all made that choice. Not a story we read and passed down. We were all there. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that holdover, that COVID holdover. You know, even the name of the Parsha, Yitro, Jethro, personifies this theme of choice. One, you know, we might ask, why is Yitro featured so prominently in such an important section? I mean, indeed, isn't the, the main point of this Parsha, the revelation and the giving of the Torah? Why, why are we detracting from the main point with this kind of extraneous story about this non-Jew and his legal system? Again, the answer centers on choice. Yitro observed just how ineffective, how inefficient our government was the first day he arrived in the camp of the Israelites. So he suggests to Moshe a more, I mean, Moshe wasn't trained in this, and it's all on his shoulders, and he cannot bear it. He's saying it. I cannot bear this. He's talking directly to God. I can't stand it. I'm in over my head. So Yitro suggests a more formal legal system with a series of courts at different levels that would benefit both Moshe and the people. This legal system that actually is created by Yitro creates order, where only chaos reigned. A social system is necessary to avert anarchy, anarchy, without any ability to choose. In a chaotic system, events happen at random. Zekara, it happened. Individuals can't control actions. There's no free real choice when anarchy is happening. So Yitro's contribution was far more substantial than simply a modern judicial system. By creating this order out of chaos, he enables the Jewish people to choose and to understand. Good morning. That choices have consequences. This Parsha, this Parsha Yitro, is not the only place where the Ten Commandments are enumerated. They also appear in, um, in Parsha Ve'et Hanan. Okay, we're going to get to that. So wh what are we supposed to, you know, intuit from this repetition? Nothing extra appears in our Torah. No extra words, no extra nothing. So the reputation, uh, the repetition of these Ten Commandments, it has to have some kind of a deeper significance. Our sages, you're going to come across the term chazal in your studies. Our sages point to the Ten Commandments and note this kind of 
this dichotomous nature within it. The commandments that are, get ready, Adam, Adam lemakom, and Adam lechaverot. The commandments that are between man and his fellow man, and man and God. So this is kind of one method of classification. Each of the 613 commandments in the Torah emanate from one of the prime 10 commandments. It doesn't matter. If you have a commandment to make a bracha over an apple, if you have a commandment not to mix linen and flax, if you have a commandment not to read by the Hanukkah candles, there is a um, direct line to one of the Ten Commandments. And this is evident when we examine the two presentations of the Ten Commandments in these two separate places in the Torah. Now, there's only a minor difference in how they're presented in the both parshas. We're not going to do the second parsha today. Okay, but the biggest difference is found in the fourth commandment to keep the Shabbat. Now, in our Torah portion today, Yitro, we're told to refrain from labor on the seventh day, followed by this expression, quote, for in six days, God made heaven and earth, the sea that is all in, that is, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Okay, close quote. In the Parsha of the Etchanan, however, that commandment to keep the Shabbat is followed by, you must remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Hashem, your God, brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So what's the significance of these two different expressions of this commandment? Okay. Our Parsha, the emphasis is on the spiritual. Okay. Even in the secular world, the act of creation is imbued with an aura of godliness. When astrophysicists, a couple of decades ago, they found scientific evidence that supported the Big Bang Theory. So what did they proclaim? Many of them said that they were seeing God. So what's that essence of the fourth commandment, observe the Shabbos? It's here we are reminded when the Jewish people were in trouble, in danger of extinction, God lent us a helping hand, just as we ourselves may lend a helping hand to a friend in need. The spirituality in our Parsha and human kindness in the next Parsha teaches us that to fulfill the mitzvah of observing Sabbath, we have to be aware of our relationship with one another as well as with God. Shabbat Shalom from Jerusalem.